It is official. Bruce Boudreaux will be the Vancouver Canucks head coach next season. Welcome to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks Insider. He's working the phones as we speak right now. Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, we uh, you know we had plenty to talk about even before this was officially confirmed by the Canucks. But yeah, if you're just catching up at about 11.45, so just over 15 minutes ago, uh, Vancouver Canucks made it official. Patrick Alvin, the general manager, announcing that Bruce Boudreaux will return to be the team's head coach in the 2022-2023 NHL season. Bruce Boudreaux coming back was always handicapped as the most likely scenario here. And yet this situation has unfolded in ways that has befuddled me and has befuddled in some ways, some of my most reliable uh, sources, uh, you know, around the industry. So you'll recall about three weeks ago, but prior to the end of the Canucks season, there was a sense that Boudreaux would be back. There was a sense that things were trending in a good direction. And when I got that sense, I assumed that that meant there was progress on an extension. That never came to pass. And in fact, the idea of it was completely, you know, vetoed effectively in public by Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford at their presser. And since then, everyone's continued to insist that Boudreaux was fated to return, that this was a fait accompli and it was just about sort of working through the process. And all of a sudden I was far less trusting of what I was hearing, perhaps because of the first experience. So I was sitting there thinking, there's something going on, right? There's something here. I never was as much on the, this is an inevitability. This is effectively done uh, in the drawer. Boudreaux's just taking some time. I never really bought that. I, I sort of saw a situation that was unfolding where there was something going on anyway, enough that I was wondering if it could get dicey, the longer it went on. And that's sort of been how I viewed it for the last 10 days. The longer the process unfolded, the less confident I was going to be about Boudreaux returning. Now, this week, we get the update that Boudreaux is going to take, um, you know, a meeting with Canucks Brass next week and thereafter make his decision. And then the deal is done on Friday. So that's a very good sign. Here's what I know about the timing. And I don't know much yet because it happened 15 yeah. minutes before we went on the air. <laughs> I know that the Boudreaux camp informed the Canucks of their decision this morning. So things changed today. Today, Boudreaux made his decision. Boom, done. No one's exercising the option. Boudreaux will be back coaching the Canucks next season on the two-year deal that he negotiated when he first joined the club in early December. Why did the timeline get expedited to this morning? Why did Boudreaux make his decision last night? I'll keep working it. I'll try and get answers. I don't understand it yet. But my guess is, here's just my guess, here's just my sense of it. If you're going to do it anyway, and if it's becoming a minor frou-frou in terms of dominating the discussion in this market in particular, why not just rip the bandaid off? Like, oh yeah, we've got some details to sort out that aren't related to compensation. Like, let's just deal with that. I'm coming back and we're going to deal with that because there's enough trust. I mean, these are, you know, when you think about Rutherford and Boudreaux, you're talking about two guys who go back Toronto area gentlemen, mm -hmm. hockey lifers, these guys go back 30 years. You know, you can sort minor details out after the big picture agreement is is reached with, with 
people you've known, whether or not you're best friends or just people you've known for a long time and have a baseline of trust, you can sort that out. Boudreaux continued to function throughout all of this uncertainty as the head coach of the Canucks. He's been taking some time off, as as coaches do right after a, a long season, but he's still been part of pitch meetings. He's still, you know, been at AHL games watching, you know, rather pointedly, the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton Penguins. <laughs> you know, uh, he's still been involved in his capacity, in his official capacity. So there was obviously some baseline functionality. There was beginning to be sort of the seams of, you know, potential drama seeded throughout the industry. And all of a sudden, it's done. It's over. Certainty reigns. Boudreaux will be back. We'll see what his staff looks like. We'll see sort of if um, certain elements of his approach are, are tweaked a little bit next season. But this is a great moment, I think. This is the best case scenario for all involved. The Canucks get Boudreaux back. All he does is win games. He's resonated in this market. He's the winningest regular season coach, active coach in the NHL right now. Not close. You can nitpick certain things. Lack of uh, discipline in matchups. The structure the team plays with. What, what have you. But he knows some big stuff. He knows the big things. And in particular, he plays this aggressive style. He gets the most out of his players, right? Like, go up and down the roster and everyone was having a career year under him. They're motivated night to night. Even the games where they didn't play well and lost, like I think about that Senators um, loss with the Gaudet shootout or the Calgary loss, which I didn't particularly like their defensive game. Uh, Those are the last week of the season losses. You might say that they're... Defensive play was poor in those games. I certainly would say that their defensive game was poor in those games, although Boudreaux pushed back at that uh, toward the end of the season when I was sort of asking him about those those facts. But you wouldn't say that the team didn't go all out. You wouldn't say that the team wasn't working and doing their best, and they were entertaining to watch, too. Those games were good, good quality entertainment, even if you know some, some of the um, foundational structural elements perhaps were, were absent. For me, not necessarily because of Boudreaux, right? I, you know, we've talked about the zone exits thing, the punt and hunt thing. I give Boudreaux credit for finding a way to maximize the skill or, or the or the results effectively of this defense core. I don't think it was a bad call considering what he had to work with. Like, I liked that approach, to be totally honest with you, even though I can see why when you're thinking about the sustainability of how you want to play, it's not ideal. Uh, you watched Tampa Toronto yesterday. You oh, know yeah. those you know those quick passes that the Leafs and the Lightning both do when exiting the zone where they'll make like three short area passes to evade pressure and then leave the zone? You never saw anything like that from the Canucks and it does so much in terms of making it a 3 on 2 as you're breaking out of the new, uh, into the neutral zone. So there's obviously some some work to do, but the Canucks have their coach back as a result. I'm not kidding about this. I like upgrade my expectations for this season by like six to eight points because I think Boudreaux going to win you a bunch of games just with his overall big picture tactical savvy, his ability to get the most out of guys, that sense of, you know, we're going to get all the breaks that he just sort of exudes on the bench, then I would have felt otherwise. So if you're a team that likes, or if you're a fan that likes winning, this is a good day for you. And the thing is, you know, this was, if it wasn't inevitable, it was the most likely outcome, which we've talked about, even after the surprising comments from, from Jib Rutherford that I think kind of caught a lot of us off guard last week. 
this was the most likely scenario. And of course, a huge part of that, obviously the biggest part of that is what he did specifically with the Canucks after taking over and the record he led the team to. But as you point out, it's not just it's it's not just his record with the Canucks in a little over half a season. It's his record overall as an NHL head coach that gives you a lot of confidence. He's going to get something close to the most out of the team. And I'm very, very curious to see now with the opportunity for Boudreaux and management to talk over the summer, the opportunity for management to really put their stamp on this roster in a way they just have not had the chance to do, uh, you know, only making one or two minor moves here or there since they've taken over. But for them to work with Boudreaux, for them to reshape the roster, for Boudreaux to have a full training camp with whatever the new team looks like, I'm going to be very, very curious to see how the team looks stylistically different, both for personnel reasons and for whatever, you know, coaching tweaks that Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin want to work with Bruce Boudreaux on. I'm going to be very, very curious to see how it looks differently next year. And I think the coaching staff, which might be some of the details that still need to be worked out, is part of that. But, you know, the thing with Jim Rutherford is we're getting kind of used to the the level of honesty he has. And so... Yeah, he was honest about not liking the team's structure, not liking their zone exits, that sort of things. But I think he was also honest saying, we'd really like the chance to work with Boudreaux on a few of those things, right? Like, they obviously see upside and see potential there and see some tweaks to Boudreaux's style well, that can work in a positive way. And because of the fireworks, because of the comments that were made that were outside of our expectations, we glommed onto those and ignored, to some extent... The, the compliments, you know, the sentences of praise for the job Boudreaux did. And the fact that it wasn't Boudreaux's staff, that he'd inherited the staff, I think is something that they regard as a positive. The fact that Boudreaux was able to come in and look, you, you look at the Canucks coaching staff right now or last season, toward the end of last season, and you've sort of got a mishmash in some ways, right? So you've got Kyle Gustafson, who ended up being, going down to the bench for a bit after Scott Walker's injury as a special assignments coach, and Jason King. And those guys, you know, Jason King worked with Travis Green for a long time in, in Utica. Gustafson was out of Portland, was a, was a Travis Green hire. Like, those were Travis Green guys, pure Travis Green guys. Then you have Brad Shaw, who was kind of like last management's mm-hmm. choice, right? So not Jim's guy, not Bruce Boudreaux's guy, but very much a coach brought in you know, in part by la- by the management group, the former management group. Um, you know, I-, I don't know that he was, he was far more involved under Boudreaux, far more involved on a day-to-day basis. And you could tell than he was in the, in the first part of the year under Green. And then you've got Scott Walker who came in with Bruce Boudreaux. They were both going to be on the Spengler Cup staff for Team Canada. Clearly a Boudreaux guy, although... You know, Scott Walker goes way back with this organization. I mean, was drafted by this organization. Uh, very close working relationship with Todd Harvey, who is the director of amateur scouting for the Canucks and who was Scott Walker's assistant coach for the Guelph Storm. I mean, those connections are, are run deep. Uh, connections with uh, Ryan Johnson run deep as well. So, And, and of course, with uh, Jim Rutherford. Mm-hmm. Jim, he played for Jim Rutherford. Uh, Jim Rutherford traded him <laughs> with his consent, right? So, uh, for sure, there's a lot going on there in terms of Scott Walker's regard. I think Scott Walker's a guy with real weight within the organization, and, and for good reason. He's an exceptional coach. And, and his Guelph Storm teams, a decade ago, you know, like, they played the style of a, of a Bruce Boudreaux fever dream. You know, just all up-tempo, all attacking. So, that's kind of the dynamic there. That's a mismatch coaching staff. 
Would we expect changes there? Perhaps. We'll see. Um, you know, the power play did really well this year. The power play was dynamic. You wouldn't look at it and say Jason King didn't do a good job, can't run an NHL power play. He clearly can. Clearly did very well. They they were one the of the weapons. best units in the league at the end of the, towards the end of the season. And and replacing probably the single best power play coach in the league in Newell Brown, despite the opinions of some in this market. Bad opinion, but by the way. Have you considered the drop pass though? Have you yes, considered sir? have you considered that no elite coach has been more scrutinized more unfairly than Newell Brown over the past decade, over two stints in Vancouver, where he's had remarkable success? Only to go to far less talented groups and have just as much success. Like Noel Brown at five on four is a monster, a machine. Um, deserves deserves more respect on his name in this market. I'll tell you that much. Anyway, Jason King filled big shoes, did really well. I think you have to say the work of Brad Shaw. I mean, this team's five on five defensive improvement was massive, massive. Now that's not all Shaw's no. doing. Uh, in fact. Their defensive results in the first 25 games, too, were really good, right? It wasn't that that cost the team wins. It was the penalty kill. So I guess that's part of defense. But their 5-on-5 defensive game, so long a flaw of this group, took a massive step this year overall. Uh, Continued under Boudreaux, although actually it had its best defensive results 5-on-5 in the first 25 games. Shaw gets a fair bit of credit for that. I also thought the best iteration of the Canucks penalty kill. Because Scott Walker did some really good things, too, with the down ice pressure. But the best iteration was the one later in the year where they really had chemistry going between Horvat and Pedersen on a sort of a second grouping and Miller and Richardson, Miller and Mott before that. I thought that was by far Vancouver's sort of most potent penalty kill was under Shaw's guidance. That's when it felt like something really sustainable and transferable to years beyond this year, right? The initial kind of boost from Scott Walker when they were using a ton of different guys, and it almost seemed like it was running on adrenaline a lot of the time, right? And, and a lack of pre-scouting. Yeah, exactly. And then, But when Brad Shaw took over and you had in particular, you know, all of a sudden Pedersen, Horvat, Quinn Hughes, all, all stepping into these really big stable roles on yeah. the penalty kill, not just being used as a rotation of eight guys, but hey, you're part of our first choice to be out there, our second choice. Uh, obviously with Miller and Richardson and Mott getting a lot of the time as well, but that felt like not just we're trying things out and they're working, but we've found something that we can really use going forward. Well, too. And, and I'm not saying like Shaw did a better job than Walker because I think it's it it's all it's all cumulative, right? It was a process, but but also it's all cumulative. Like I think people ignore this too when talking about uh, coaching in general. Like a guy who was dismissed from an organization, for example. We'll be like, oh, that guy was terrible and da da da. Um, but the work that they may have done along the way with certain players that then break out, like, still matters. You know what I mean? It still matters. So under Walker, they started using the skill guys. So I may, might say that Shaw had the most success, but also those so, those some of the were success those, under Scott Walker. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's more than anything. It's it's a it's a group effort, and, and as I like to say, you you fail as an organization, you you succeed as an organization. Um, the Shaw, th- Shaw thing, though, is really interesting because if you're talking about structure, details, um, open-mindedness to analytics, like that really does all describe Shaw to a T. Um, you know, his, his role overall, I'm, I'll be curious to see it. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of Boudreaux lieutenants. Like, you know how coaches have their own oh, yeah. classic lieutenants? The guys that we'd expect to be connected to Boudreaux based on history, like, some are head coaches. Well, one of them is Dean Evison. Dean Evison is a head coach. <laughs> and, you know, Trent Yanni's like 
a very highly regarded assistant. I mean, you go down the list, like most of them are engaged elsewhere. So I don't know that there's any names that sort of linger out there as guys that Boudreaux would be tightly connected to or closely connected to that you'd sort of be expecting them to bring in. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what the staff looks like. That'll shake out in the in the days and weeks ahead, presumably, now that Boudreaux's made his decision. But his decision clearly was made last night, was communicated to the team today, and that brings us to this point where a resolution was reached, perhaps somewhat ahead of schedule, um, and also, you know, ahead of when the first round ends. Uh, ahead That's of the big one, right? You've got all these series wrapping up this weekend, so even if the intention, even if Bruce Boudreaux isn't even thinking... I'm going to wait and see what happens with the first round and then make my decision. You never know what's going to happen. What team's going to give him a call? Totally. The fact that he the fact that he's making the decision now shows a, a really strong level of commitment to the organization. I think um every day every day before June 1st, like the more days before June 1st this decision was made, I think the better signal it sends, you know, up the chain from from Boudreaux's perspective. I think it's uh I think it's a very good day for the team that this is signed, sealed, delivered, done. Like there it is done. They can now move on with the meat of their off season. This is no longer at all a priority. There's lots of other off season stuff to get into. And I do want to do that. 650, 650 is the Dunbar lumber text line. The smart alternative visit Dunbar lumber on bridge street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your thoughts and reactions to the news that uh, Bruce Boudreau, will be officially returning as the Canucks head coach for next season. And just quickly on the Boudreaux point, again, this announcement uh, is for just next year, right? The terms of his contract, the mutual option, both teams will be either you know not exercising the ability to walk away or exercising the ability to stay in the relationship, however you want to uh, call it. But Boudreaux will be back for the one season. And just on the theme again of taking Jim Rutherford at face value and believing what he tells you when he's speaking to the media... You know, it is important to note that uh, uh, although he said they weren't going to negotiate an extension with Boudreaux at this point, they would be very open to potentially negotiating an extension for more years down the road next season, depending on how the results go. And again, I think you got to take that at face value, right? There, Yes, this return is just for next season right now, but there's every opportunity, depending on how things go, depending on some of how those tweaks to the system and all that work out, that Bruce Boudreaux could be behind the bench for uh, more years to come after that as well. And I think that's an important thing to note here. Again, just on the subject of yeah, when Jim Brotherford says it, he he means it. He's certainly going to be open to that. Yeah. And hey, by the way, that's some good branding. That's some good branding for the Canucks, right? No reading between the lines. They they're they're shooting straight, right? They're telling it like it is, as best as they can see it. In fact, more critically than a lot of media in this market has been the commentary of the executive. And just so let's go. So clearly and directly as well. Yeah, You know, like, no, you know, we're not going to work on an extension. We'd love to have him back. We could work on an extension next year. Mm-hmm. That is very just kind of brass tacks, unemotional. I'm not going to try to dress it up in any language. Here's the situation. And that's exactly how it's played out so far. And the more you do that, the more credibility you build up. I don't know that anyone's really ever tried to do this, too. Has ever tried to, like, has ever come into this market. And, you know, we're we're ravenous hyenas in this market. Or certainly, <laughs> speaking for myself anyway. And not just when I'm at the Pizza Hut buffet. Right. And you come into this market and all of a sudden you're like, hey, what if we just shoot straight and don't try and puff it up and go about our business and level with the fans? What what, what would happen? It's like some crazy experiment. You'd like say it in a meeting and everyone would be like, no, you can't do it. Horrible. What? But 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 hey, it's going to be tried. 
And we'll see. I mean, in fairness, right, one would say there are negatives. There are drawbacks that come from that approach. We've probably seen it over the last two weeks. If if um, we didn't have the March 1st or the June 1st deadline to discuss, for example, right, if we hadn't had the comments on zone exits, we would all just be living in a world where we assumed it was getting done. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are drawbacks to it, but I do think there are real benefits to it. And I suspect that the benefits will matter the most when the team needs it the most. You know what I mean? It's like it's like when the chips are down and you're really in a foxhole that you can come out and be like, this is what's going on. And people will be like, of course, fair. At least we know the story. I think I think it's one of those, you know, it's not all upside. Let's put it that way. This is this is communications guy uh, sure. version of me talking. It's not all upside, but I think it matters when the chips are down, I've, I've enjoyed watching it play out, and I'm curious to see this experiment continue. I also think when you're Jim Rutherford, you have more room, even when there are the kind of bumps in the road created by that process. You know, just look at this, how this played out between Boudreaux and Rutherford, or Boudreaux and the Canucks organization. You can maybe make some pointed comments, but the thing is, you're Jim Rutherford, and everyone knows you, and everyone respects you, and you carry so much weight that you can kind of make those pointed comments, and you can also smooth them over relatively easily, or more easily than... Uh, maybe a younger or less experienced executive yeah. can. That's kind of the privilege you have as Jim Rutherford. When you're when you're one ring away from having <laughs> yeah. to decide between your pinky and your thumb, right? You, yeah. you, you, you have some you have some wiggle. <laughs> exactly. And again, it's like, oh yeah, having a guy like Jim Rutherford at the head of your organization, there are there's some pretty tangible benefits uh, to doing that, as the Canucks are discovering. I think uh, six fifty six fifty. Keep your thoughts coming in. So okay, before this news dropped. At uh, 11.45, we are all set to run through uh, the great article you and Rick Dollywell have up at The Athletic right now. Including my Boudreaux Including update your, that, yes, that, might have, that might have been posted on the site <laughs> as Boudreaux's camp was calling. Your Boudreaux intelligence. I can, I can tell you this much. We're not hearing that Boudreaux's making a decision as we're <laughs> drafting this column. <laughs> I, had, I had, okay, one of my greatest fails in the history of my, of, of my um, time in this industry was... Uh, I wrote a quick reaction piece to the Sammy Paulson trade on deadline day saying the acquisition of Sammy Paulson doesn't displace Cody Hodgson. And within 25 minutes of me posting it, Hodgson got traded to Buffalo for Zach Cassian. (laughs) And it was just this moment where I was like, oh boy, oh boy, good, good job. Oh, that's (laughs) That's on the back. I don't quite feel like that this morning because... In the in the piece, we enumerate, you know, Boudreaux's expected to come back. The longer this lasts, the less we're sure. There's some seeds of of perhaps, you know, some complications in the relationship, and yet there's a baseline functionality there. The you know, everyone says both publicly and privately that Boudreaux will be back. So if it's that simple, why is it not done yet? And it is done now. It was now that it simple. <laughs> we now know. We now understand. The question is answered. That's the lead-in to a very good piece that you should totally go read at The Athletic Vancouver because there's lots of good intel in there. And, but this one, this one, the Boudreaux update, you know, might be a little out of date now. Well, yeah. But you just skip over that part or read it, you know, out of curiosity's sake and then get to the real meat of the article, which I do want to discuss. There's some questions about it coming in as well, about Andre Kuzmenko, about the uh, Canucks training staff. Lots of interesting things to get to there, and we will do it on the other side. Plus, I mean, man, another fantastic night in the Stanley Cup playoffs last night setting up. A really, really exciting day of Game 7s tomorrow. So we'll talk about all that as well. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Drop it like it's hot, Faber. Yay! (laughs) The Pizza Hut Buffet. (laughs) 
We'll be right back. It's the Home of the Canucks Sports Set 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you on a Friday. A pretty significant Friday from a Canucks perspective as they officially announced that Bruce Boudreaux will return as head coach for next season. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery avenue machinery.ca get your thoughts in as well 650 650 to the dunbar lumber text line we'll continue to take your reaction to the bruce boudreaux news but as i said before the break drancer there was a lot of other uh, information and tidbits in your latest piece uh, in, in collaboration with rick dollywell up at the athletic right now about the canucks offseason priorities that i wanted to chat about as well and this text came in from Paul on the Sunshine Coast saying, uh, is the Bruce confirmation, or does the Bruce confirmation mean the Canucks have a better chance of signing the high-demand Russian player, who, of course, is Andre Kuzmenko? And I- I'm not going to say that it means they have a better chance. I do think the fact that Bruce Boudreaux was involved in the pitch meeting, or one of the meetings with Andre Kuzmenko and the Canucks brass it would have been a hiccup in that process, in that recruitment process, if ultimately Bruce Boudreau did not return. So it's, I don't know if it moves the needle towards the Canucks, but the alternative probably would have, uh, at the very least, been a bump in the road in that recruitment process. Absolutely. The, look, I, so I don't know if it would have been a bump in the road so much as, you know, Boudreau was a key part of that pitch meeting, and of course he was. The The organization... And this is one thing we touched on at length, Dollywall and I, in the article that we published at The Athletic today. The Canucks pitch to Kuzmenko is not just, come here and we're promising you ice time. And it's it's a multi-layered thing. It's, you can only sign a one-year entry-level deal, but here's our long-term vision for turning you into a valuable player for us and an NHL commodity for yourself. Part of the pitch involved the amount of cap space the team will have next season, right? Kuzmenko's limited to 925k paragraph 1 salary for this year because he's 26. The ELS or the entry level system uh governs his deal. He you know, there's there's not a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah. There's not a lot of wiggle room in terms of what teams bidding for his services and there's a lot of them, two-thirds of the league are able to, you know, slide across his desk and ask for his autograph on. But Opportunity matters a ton, particularly because if you're Kuzmenko, your interest is in coming and establishing yourself as a valuable NHL player, and then like Dadnov or Artemi Panarin or any number of or Kirill Kaprasov, right, cashing in on your second deal once you've once you've shown that you can be a productive offensive contributor in the NHL. Boudreaux was a crucial part of that pitch, like a big factor in selling Kuzmenko on not just what they'll do this year, but how he can grow into an NHL player within the context of this organization. So, you know, I don't know that it would have been a huge loss necessarily. Like, I, I don't think you couldn't repair that, but the coach had to be in that meeting. Boudreaux was in that meeting. Uh, I hear he was an effective part of that pitch. So uh, certainly good news for the Canucks on the Kuzmenko front, but I, I don't think it would have been decisive one way or the other. This player is making a very like stoic high stakes decision on on where to begin his NHL career. I think the head coach matters, but fit 
opportunity, uh, sort of the long-term view of, of, you know, being a really successful NHL player, I think those are going to be the, the sort of factors that take precedence. Uh, producer Chris Faber, what's, uh, what's your read on the Kuzmenko situation, Faber? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, Durant, that so you bring up like how the coach is important, obviously, in this situation, with Edmonton and Vegas being two of the other teams that are kind of in the final contention to land Kuzmenko. Mm-hmm. You'd have to think that the Edmonton coach, I don't know if he's taking time out of his playoff experience right now to to talk to this potential Russian free agent coming in, and I don't know what the future of Vegas' coaching staff is. So I think this does give the Canucks a little bit of a, a leg up when it comes to that, and if it was a good communication between the player and the coach, that has to help the Canucks' chances of landing him. And the other interesting thing that really jumped out to me, Drancer, reading what you had to say up at The Athletic about the situation was the emphasis the Canucks put on... Kuzmenko's ability to play on the power play and the role he could play for the Canucks on the power play. Now, that's interesting from a Canucks team-building perspective as well, but when you just think about which teams can offer the most intriguing opportunities to Andre Kuzmenko, there's no better way to rack up points and prove your kind of offensive bona fides than getting consistent power play one opportunities with a given team. And look, there's a lot of also ran non-playoff teams around the league that, you know, have holes in their top six and can say, hey, come here uh, and, and you can be in our top six and you'll probably get power play time too. But when you look at the success the Canucks had on the power play last year and some of the key personnel, okay, let's even leave aside some of the guys with uncertainty surrounding them, like JT Miller and Brock Besser. But just look at the three three of the cornerstones of the Canucks power play that are almost guaranteed to be here next season. Quinn Hughes, Elias Pettersson, and Bo Horvat. If you're offering a player not just top six minutes, but potentially the chance to be a fixture on a power play with those guys who have the track record of racking up points with the man advantage, that's an extremely, extremely interesting scenario. And that's a scenario where a player like Kuzmenko could potentially really do some damage and up his value around the league. So again, I'm not saying that's going to be the kind of decisive thing or they're guaranteeing him a spot on the first power play. They still have JT Miller under contract. You know, Brock Besser's an RFA. Those guys are pretty key parts of the power play as well. But when you just think about it, if it all comes together from Kuzmenko's perspective and he's one of the key guys on that power play, that's a pretty enticing scenario to be in. Uh, Understanding two things about the Canucks pitch yesterday, I think, poses some really big questions. So, or not yesterday, but last week. This is what we found out yesterday. So, one key part of the Canucks pitch is long-term cap space. Well, that poses some pretty interesting questions considering how vital extension talks with the likes of JT Miller and Bo Horvat and Brock Besser are going to be particularly over the course of the next eight weeks for this club. Uh, the, the other one was power play time, right? And power play one would appear to be settled. Now, I suspect that there's a bunch of players that this team would love to see be more productive or get more of a share of power play ice time. So, you know, this doesn't just apply to Kuzmenko, and it doesn't just apply to PP1. PP1 seems to be settled, particularly if all of those five players return, but punching up power play two is pretty key in terms of moving yourself as a club from ninth in power play percentage or whatever they finished at to one or two, right? You do need that punch. Uh, Kuzmenko could be a guy who slots on the power play two, uh, certainly they need more flankers. They need more forwards capable of playing the flank, particularly as power play two often had two defensemen. Uh, I think, I think though, when you think about it, like you'd love to find a way to get Connor Garland more ice time mm-hmm. at five on four. You'd love to find a way to get 
more offensively out of Oliver ekman Larson, which really starts with him getting more power play opportunity. You'd love to find a role for Vasily Podkolzin with the man advantage in some way. 100%. And and so there, there's certainly space for a dynamic second power play unit, too. I, I didn't mean to imply that the Canucks are necessarily... Oh, no. Yeah, no. Are it's, looking... it's, it's just interesting, the idea of that opportunity is even on the table. Or, right, it, that he can foresee a path to that it, opportunity. It, and it poses some big questions about some of the other off-season priorities that the Canucks are looking at, which is why we sort of laid it out and, ma- and made the argument in that fashion. Um, because, yeah, I think the Canucks' pursuit of Kuzmenko may tell you a fair bit about what the club is thinking, right? Restocking... Uh, overall asset value, finding a, finding a here, here's the other here's the other part of it, right? What have we seen this organization do twice under new management? We haven't seen a lot of moves under new management, but four of their five moves, with the other being the signing of Arshdeep Baines, uh, four of their five moves really sort of fit within the same frame, right? Trade Tyler Mott, replace him for free. Trade Travis Hamanick, cheaper, younger player with more upside, for you know, effectively free when you factor the in same the, the same yeah. the same draft pick changed hands, right? That's sort of been kind of the mo. Right hand makes a move, left hand replaces the move the the right hand made. And so, if you're landing Kuzmenko with no acquisition cost, is that a proactive decision that allows you to make a move to to shed cap space elsewhere? I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it's a question that their pursuit of Kuzmenko poses and one that we laid out at length in that article. Yeah, and C&J in the work truck texts in 650-650. How much does the Kuzmenko situation reveal about the Canucks' willingness to trade Miller to make space for him? Look, this is not a situation where they're going to look at it and say, oh, well, if we have Andre Kuzmenko, then we can definitely trade JT Miller. I think more than any player specifically, it just speaks to... One, how much of a priority priority it is for them to clear cap space, which we've heard over and over and over again. But also, I think it does speak to maybe a degree of confidence that they're going to be able to do so, right? That they're not worried mm. about opening up that space for the future, that they can feel pretty secure saying to Kuzmenko's representation, we're going to have space to do something long term if it works out, right? right? So yeah, I think that, I think again, right. it's not just about a specific player like JT Miller, but just in the grand scheme of things, they're they're looking at it and saying, you know what, we're going to find a way uh, to potentially open up some cap space, which pretty positive and a pretty interesting uh, perspective on the Canucks offseason. Um, Chris from East Suck, which uh, very, very specific location. I very, love that, yeah. Chris. <laughs> Suck is great. Have you ever been? I've actually never been to Suck. No, oh, man, you got to go see the goats on the roof. No, no. Well, maybe they have that in Sook, too, but that's in uh, Coombs. Oh, that's in Coombs? Yeah. What do you guys... You guys know it's Sook. Yeah, sorry. What did I say? What are you guys Suk. saying? It's Sook. Sounds like a swear word what I you guys Suk. are saying. <laughs> it's Sook. <laughs> There's we no got, goats on we the got, We offended... There's no, no that's goats? Coom, that's, that's Coombs. Yeah, Coombs. You got that right. Thank you. Or as but, you would probably say, Comb. That's Coombs. Huh? What's, where's Sook, then? Souk is like near Victoria. Souk is like southwest of Victoria or west of yeah. Victoria, right? I don't yeah. know. I don't think I know that area as well. My bad. Coombs is on the road between. I apologize uh, to our listeners in East Souk. From Nanaimo to uh, Port Alberta. And I, apologize, and I apologize to Nanaimo Faber for messing yes. up the pronunciation back, of, uh, of Vancouver back Island Back to Chris from East Souk's, uh, his question. He says, hey guys, I'm pleased to see that Bruce is back, but I have questions about the training staff. Uh, and this is, again, w- reported by you and Dollywell at The Athletic. He says, if they have indeed made changes to the training staff, what is the plan going forward? Some of those guys let go have been with the team for a long, long time. And uh, for those who haven't had a chance to read your piece or, or catch up on social media, I'll, I'll just give you a chance here 
Drance to kind of break down what exactly is going on with the team's training staff. Five members of the human performance department were terminated this week or dismissed this week, including long-serving members of the staff, including Roger Takahashi, uh, Dave Zarn, occasional third goalie for the Canucks, and, um, excuse me, John Sanderson, a veteran of over 1,500 NHL games. Uh, Patrick Johnston on Twitter has the names of the other two. I wasn't able to confirm them by the time we publi- uh, published the article. Um, but uh, but if you'd look that up, since my internet's a little flimsy, I'd uh, love to give those gentlemen a shout-out, too. I can't speak to the Canucks' plans with that department. I can't speak to the reasoning um, that the organization ultimately decided to go in a different direction. Clearly, there's a pretty significant review of all levels of the organization. One thing I've told you and our listeners about multiple times is it's not as if, like, an organization's sort of like a ship of state, right? You, you try really hard to turn it a couple of degrees, and it might not matter for the first two miles, <laughs> but but when you get far, far enough out to sea, when you get far enough out to sea, you've gone in a totally different direction because of the two degrees you've turned. And it makes a huge difference in terms of your overall franchise's direction. I, I clearly, clearly, because of the changes we've seen in multiple departments over the course of the past week, um, this review period has been ongoing under Rutherford, and we're beginning to see the, the, the Rutherfordian stamp, as it were, put on this organization in a lot of different ways. Again, I'm not going to pretend that I know what's next. I don't know what's next in terms of staffing that department. What I can tell you is that this is a hugely impactful move in terms of how it impacts player experience, um, in terms of how it impacts player availability. And, you know, across the board, these three, uh, the three gentlemen that I confirmed, all five, hardworking, loyal, um, long-serving, long-serving, and, um, you know, working in hockey it's the best worst job in the world sometimes it, it can be a, it can be a really tough business in, in a lot of ways uh this week in the human performance department we saw we saw a sign of that uh so all the best to those gentlemen uh in what's next congratulations to all of them too on a tremendous uh run for this franchise um and that's really all the context that i can provide for now uh, per Patrick Johnson, the other two members of the uh, organization let go. Athletic therapist Nick Addy Jib and assistant strength and conditioning coach Ken Hetzel as well. And as you said, I mean, it's it's not – I don't think it's performance-based or anything like that. It's Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvine. They're, they were going to review every ounce of this organization, every inch of this organization. They think they want things done in a specific way and – they're going to do what they feel is necessary to kind of put that vision into place. Uh, 650, 650 uh, <laughs> is the Dunbar Lover text line. Uh, Jerry texts in, you guys should remind your audience to not get too specific with their location. And then he gives his uh, address in Port Moody and says his door is always unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go that specific, Jerry. But yeah, as specific as you want to get. I have no issue with that. Um, there's there's other stuff in the in your article that's very interesting. But I do want to talk about the Stanley Cup playoffs. So maybe we'll park some of the other Canucks stuff, save it for next week. Sure. You know, we got to do a slow drip of this Canucks news, Dranson. Absolutely. That, now that the Boudreaux situation is resolved. Hey, there's going to be a lot to talk about. <laughs> there's always a lot to talk about. There is. There really is. Well, we're, next week, next week, we're doing deep, deep dives on the cap. Oh, yeah. You be, that's, that's, my, that's my Let's Monday go. column. I've got my model built everybody well and we're getting to the stage it's not maybe i'm getting a little ahead of ourselves but we're, we, we can start to talk about like 
targets, you know, UFA targets and trade well, targets and, and all of those fun things. And that's one one last piece from the article, and we'll get into this next week because we can do a whole show on this, but I don't think the Canucks are particularly thrilled with the options available to them in the, on the unrestricted free agency, particularly along the blue line, and that might necessitate some pretty intriguing changes in terms of how s- existing players are deployed. So uh, check out the article at The Athletic for that, and check back next week when we dive into yeah. the possibility of Oliver ekman Larson on the right side. Ooh, there's a little teaser. I love it. Uh, but for now, yeah, let's talk Stanley Cup playoffs, because another, a third straight, really compelling, really entertaining night, I thought. And no surprise when you have four game six, four potential elimination games going. Yeah, once you get to going. this stage. Yeah, but... The Leafs game than, was the best one, though. Other than the Minnesota-St. Louis game, and I, I know the Boston-Carolina one wasn't particularly close, but at least it extends the series, so there's some kind of inherent drama there. The two other series, though, the Toronto-Tampa and Edmonton-LA, really compelling games, late ties, late lead changes, overtime, of course, in Tampa, the whole deal, really, really fantastic. And, I mean, let's talk about, you know, the, the series that's getting the most of it most attention for obvious reasons is Toronto Tampa Bay but it's not just about Toronto it's that those are two of the seven best teams in the league and look the the kind of there's no other series pitting two teams that good against one another in this first round period the emotional fandom stakes are obviously huge from a Toronto perspective but let's not forget Tampa's trying to three-peat Tampa's trying to do something that hasn't been done in almost 40 years there's history on the line their stakes are enormous in both ways now I was I was thinking about being a high school kid today and i was thinking about the first time i ever heard gimme shelter by the rolling stones (laughs) all right and i remember my eyes widening as i processed the song and just thought this is a ah (laughs) this is a perfect track it's a perfect track i thought to myself you know back in 2004 i said if this dropped tomorrow and i downloaded it off kazaa right i would say this is a this track sounds like 10 years ahead of its time and to, to realize that it was written and you know published and yeah. pressed in the 70s always blew my mind. Now, the idea of that song, obviously, is that like violence, right, is just a shot away. War, right? Murder, it's just a shot away. Reference to uh, the start of World War One, right? And then at the end, and, and love, sisters, just a kiss away, right? The line between peace and love and the line between absolute chaos is far thinner than we'd like to imagine. The line between success in the NHL playoffs and failure, historic failure and historic success is so fine at this time of year. And you could see it play out across the league. I just felt like the Toronto game was the finest example of it. You know, you get Austin Matthews took over that overtime, took over that overtime, like was a terrifying beast of a player. And then, you know, shortly after he's put a deflection Inches wide of the post, he catches a rut in the neutral zone and allows Brandon Hagel to just speed into the the leaf zone. The moment you saw that zone entry, you knew there was trouble coming. There was trouble, and and Jack Campbell, to his credit, makes a really difficult stop off of was it Pilot, Kalorn, Kalorn, yeah, I'm and not sure. but Brandon Point, was the Brandon one Point in front, yeah. Johnny on the spot, one of the great winners. Uh, you know, of his generation, third round pick, a disaster that he went was uh, still available that long, especially because anyone who'd watched even a hint of WHL knew that that kid had it. Anyway, point point going in the third round to me feels almost like an inflection point in NHL draft history. Totally, like that's the, kind of the last of a, a certain breed of pick that you're not going to see much anymore, if at all. Well, 
and this is why, like right now, everyone in talking about the 2023 draft pick, just to pivot off your digression there quickly, everyone's talking about Bedard, Mitchkov, and Fantilli, and you're hearing it now. And this isn't just me being, you know, a, a chest out Vancouverite, but there's a there's another Vancouverite named Zachary Benson who's currently playing for the Winnipeg Ice, which is one of the most loaded teams in the WHL. And I promise you this, Benson's going to be, if not in that conversation with those three other players, you know, the the consensus next layer down guy 12 months from now. And, and I think there's a real shot that he gets into that conversation. He's that good out of Abbotsford, out of Yale. Um, he's, uh, he's an incredible, incredible player. You want the next Braden Point? You're getting him in the top five. Next year. Yeah. Like, period. You're anyway. not getting him in the third round anymore. Anyway, the Leafs now have lost three playoff overtimes. Three overtimes with a chance to advance and end their, you know, almost 20-year-long streak of not winning around in the playoffs. And for this particular core, you know, get over the hump for the first time in six tries. Like, painful. In those three overtime periods, they have outshot their opposition 22-8. to eight. 22 to 8, zero goals against, th- or three goals against, zero goals for. The line between success, <laughs> between and potentially historic success and historic failure, and, you know, perhaps massive upheaval within the management and coaching ranks of the Toronto Maple Leafs, it's so fine. It's so cruel. And to bring this all back to Vancouver again, just a reminder, just a reminder how much you need. Just how much you need in terms of player talent, in terms of ability, in terms of luck, in terms of getting the right matchup, in terms of seeding. I mean, it all adds up to, you know, a a 1% or 2% chance or a 1% or 2% edge over your opponent that also still might not matter because your best player, one of the best skaters in the world, hits a rut in the neutral zone. On the subject of just how hard it is to win and how much you need to go your way... Look at where Minnesota finds itself this morning, waking up. You know, go back two weeks in time, riding high, one of the best seasons in franchise history, you know, fringe heart candidate in Kirill Kaprizov. They went on a heater to end the year with Cam Talbot to lock up home ice advantage. They're kind of a trendy, dark horse Stanley Cup pick. And now they wake up today and everyone hates it there all of a sudden, Drancer. There's questions about the coach. Have they have they fractured the relationship with Cam Talbot? Kevin Fiala disappeared. You're entering three years of Cap Hell. Like, two weeks separates some of the most optimistic times in franchise history for Minnesota. And now they're waking up. And look, I know it's always bad after a loss and things will happen. And it's not going to be... I'm not saying they're doomed to uh, you know slide back down the standings next year or anything, but... You can have a year like they just had and still find yourself facing some incredibly difficult questions. Here's where stubbornness matters more than almost anything else in hard cap league. You need to take those losses on the chin. And if you believe in your approach, you need to keep going. And I guarantee you the wild believe in their approach and they need to keep going. I think they honestly made a mistake starting Talbot in that series over Marc-Andre Fleury. I've, I've sort of been talking about that a little bit. They, for me, are a genuinely elite team that's now entering a few seasons where there's going to be immense challenges, but not insurmountable ones. If you draft well, if you have a good source of cheap labor, which they've certainly done the last two years, and if you're able to problem-solve effectively, right? Like, one way to problem-solve if you're them is to go get that Shea Weber contract, right? Which will allow you to exceed the salary cap. Go get Michael Furland. Go mm-hmm. go collect some LTI deals. Yeah, it, it, you're not even going to need to give up assets to do it, but obviously if you can send out salary in those trades, 
in exchange, ideally, for guys on ELCs or guys like Brandon Hagel with those types of deals, what have you. I mean, this is going to be something that they can overcome. I look at this wild team as a genuinely elite team and the first genuinely elite team to be eliminated. Of my seven teams that I'm pretty convinced are going to win the Stanley Cup this year, we're down to six. We're down to six still standing. And so, but and that's painful because they did, at some level, you have to be confident when you're Bill Guerin, when you're the Wild, that you did everything you could to support that group. And at some point, it's down to the players. And at some point, it's down to luck. And at some point, it's down to coin flip playoff hockey. And you just need to be stubborn enough to take that loss, like feel it, be like, yes, I know this sucks for Wild fans because of the failures of the past, but that's not on us. We're on the right track. We just have to keep going. And if you're the Wild, I think that's how you have to feel today. You can't overreact to Kevin Fiala having a bit of a poor series. You have to find a way to build a bridge to Cam Talbot. You have to be stubborn in your approach because the Wild have done so much good, so much right, so much well, that if you keep doing it, eventually you break through. It's going to be a fantastic night again tonight with three game sixes on tap. Can't wait for tomorrow with three decisive game sevens. Enjoy the weekend, everybody. Enjoy the hockey. More Stanley Cup playoff coverage and more coverage of Bruce Boudreaux's official return to the Canucks coming up on the People's Show with Bick Nazar, Randy Janda. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I want to cover it. The Maple Leafs.